0: I interviewed Jamaica Kincaid months ago about her children's book uh, party about an event that took place at the New York Public Library that she wrote about in "Shouts and Murmurs" in the New York in the New Yorker magazine ages and ages ago. It was illustrated by Ricardo Cortez, and I thought it would be a good time to re-release my episode with Jamaica Kincaid, who, as you probably know, is one of the most uh, esteemed African American. Authors around living today, um, and we got to chat about her love of gardening. And she like didn't even want to come in from the garden to <laughs> to do the podcast. And um, in the podcast, I mentioned that I was going to be seeing her. I was going to be attending the same event that she was at the New York Public Library. And then months later, we did meet there finally, and I got to greet her in person. And it was so nice to be able to see her and talk to her about the podcast and um, all the rest. So um, it kind of came full circle anyway um in my own small effort to amplify black voices this week in particular since this is the hashtag blackout tuesday hashtag stay muted week i am only not muting myself so that i can give an intro to this amazing um author and leader and i hope that you uh, get a lot out of our conversation I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the Webby-nominated podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I am just beyond excited to be talking to the legendary writer, novelist, and professor Jamaica Kincaid today. Jamaica is most recently the author of children's book Party, illustrated by Ricardo Cortez. Originally from Antigua, Jamaica, who was born named Elaine Potter Richardson, came to the United States to work as an au pair at age 16. She was a staff writer at the New Yorker magazine for 20 plus years. Her books include novels Annie John, Lucy, At the Bottom of the River, The Autobiography of My Mother, Mr. Potter, A Small Place, My Brother, My Garden, Among Flowers, and See Now Then. Some of those were not Novels, by the way. Jamaica teaches in the English, African, and African-American studies departments at Harvard University. She has received the Guggenheim Award, the Lannan Literary Award for Fiction, the Clifton, Fadiman Medal, and the Dan David Prize for Literature. She currently lives in Vermont. Hello? Hello. Hi. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast and and spending the time talking to me. I'm so honored that you're doing this. Oh,
1: thank you. I'm honored, too. I mean, I never—I've
0: done my son's podcast. But anyway, I mustn't waste time on my podcast history. Go ahead. <laughs> so I have so many questions for you, but the first thing I want to talk about is your latest book, Party, with Ricardo Cortez. And I just interviewed him too, and he was lovely and told me all about everything, about how the it became a book. But I want to hear it from your perspective. How did you do your first children's book, Party? Oh, well, it's because of
1: him. I never thought of doing a children's book. I am, I mean, I don't think there's, such a thing as a children's book. I read all kinds of books and the idea that I don't know what a children's book means really. So do you have to talk a different way to children? So I would I never thought of myself as doing a children's book. I mean when I was a child, I could have read the books and would have loved to read the books I have written, but I don't consider I've written children's books. And sometimes I read the book I read as a child, which sometimes seemed to have been were in the children's library. And some of the books I read were not in the children's library. They were books I found from my mother or or something. But in any case, I never thought of, my, of writing a children's book. But Ricardo apparently had read some of the stories I read for Talk of the Town, Talk Stories. And he liked that one and thought it would be a good children's book. I was quite mystified by it at first because, you know, I think of the those stories I wrote in Talk of the Town as sort of little sketches of how I would come to write. I mean, if you ever read the talk stories, they're very weird. They're not like talk stories at all. <laughs> the traditional talk story, which is a piece of reporting, but I would combine reporting with Stylistic things. You know, Mr. Sean of the New Yorker once said to me that the only worse reporter than me was George W.S. Tro. <laughs> <laughs> and he did, I think, mean it as a compliment. He loved George and he loved me. So, <laughs> that story, I had gone to the 50th anniversary party of the Nancy Drew, of the publication of the Nancy Drew books, and I had loved them as a child, they were in the children's library though I liked even more a series about Cherry Ames, who was a nurse. But the Nancy Drew stories, I remembered them, and I'd gone to the 50th anniversary this party. And I think at the time they were suffering in sales. This was in the early 80s or 70s, I can't remember, it's so long ago. And so they gave, gave this big party in an old house that was supposed to be a replica of something that Nancy and her friends would be trapped in after they'd gone to investigate some trivial something that seemed to be murder, but <laughs> it made murder seem like a swimming party. <laughs> anyway, he said he could make it, he would love to illustrate it, but I didn't do any writing. I think he may have edited it. I didn't pay much close attention. To what he would do with the text so much as I loved his illustrations. I would buy the book just to look at the
0: illustrations. They are beautiful. They're really, really beautiful. Really just tell evocative of such a time and place and they're beautiful of the library and they're really great. I must say I had yeah. to, I had to read it a, like, a couple times, and I'm like, did I miss what the mystery of this was? So you were the one who was at this event. Can you give us, like, an inside scoop? What were they actually pointing to? What did they see?
1: Well, they would have seen how I wrote the story. If you read the story, is that I was making fun of, oh, how to say this, because it's my interpretation. But I... I, was making fun of the whole, what we now call, I didn't have this word for it at the time, but what we now call white privilege, you know, mm-hmm. the idea of, first of all, of these well off girls who had, you know, lived comfortably someplace in New Jersey. They were white. They they had nothing in their lives, really. And they would look for something wrong. And there was something n- never really wrong. You know, the wrong was an invention. You know, some peerless person with horses or Something. And the party really was about nothing, you know, just trying to drum up, sales for this really kind of sexist, racist story. I was making fun of, as I say, what we now call white privilege. But Ricardo could see another interpretation of that they would discover something which they would keep a secret. And so he thought it would be, he would leave it up to the imagination of the child. What did they see? And should they go back and look for clues in the drawings? And I think how I read it from from his point of view, the clues, but this is only because of my own obsession, the clues would be in all the flowers scattered around and that what they see is some mysterious garden, and if I were, as I say, I left it up to him. But if I were to rewrite it, I suppose I would have put in the mysterious thing they saw would be Montezuma's garden or something like that, or paradise or something, which would be garden related. But it's, that would be my interpretation, and it's up to the reader to say, well, what did they? What do you think they saw? When go go back through the pictures and. What do you think they saw a scene in which the people who are at the party made into angels or you know because they're not very nice people if you look at them <laughs> and the institutions so that's you know but i I really left it up to him but but in my story, I was making fun of the nothingness of. That was in the books. So it's supposed to be the stories that later become interpreted as some empowering of females or some something like that. I think empowering of female, uh, white females, because white women always want to do what white men do. I think that for them is the allure of equality. If men can kill six million people, why can't we do it too? Hmm. So that was my interpretation originally of the, the nothingness of in this house. But again, that's what I re- get from reading the story. And I think Ricardo wisely thought it should stir up your imagination. What do you think they saw, given all the things, where they're from, how they're dressed, their background? They walk up into this grand affair. What do you think they are looking for?
0: I think he was very wise to do it. I agree. It's a great it's a great book for any type of audience. I just love the pictures and I I love the the mystery of it especially because it's about a mystery book. So, anyway, I really enjoyed it. Thank you for sharing it in this forum and everything. It's kind of a departure from you although as you said you can it doesn't matter who reads it you're just writing for writing but you know I remember reading Annie John years and years ago and I recently finished reading your memoir about your brother which you called My Brother and how you took care of him and went back to Antigua to deal with him when he had the AIDS virus and you wrote in such a thoughtful really interesting way about your relationship with your mother in that book, which I was hoping to talk to you a little bit about. I'm just going to read a little quote. You said, My mother loves children. I want to say in her way. And that is very true. She loves us in her way. It never has occurred to her that her way of loving us might not be the best thing for us. It has never occurred to her that her way of loving us might have served her better than it served us. And why should it not? Perhaps all love is self-serving. I do not know. I do not know. So, I just wanted to I wanted you to talk a little more about that passage and how you were feeling then, and maybe how you feel about your relationship now.
1: Oh, gosh. Well, first of all, my mother is dead. And so my relationship with her, and I think about her every day, strangely, you didn't have to bring her up for me to have thought of her because my whole life seems to be saturated with with her. how so, my relationship to to her actually, grows more warmly and positive the longer she stays dead. It's not impossible for her to come back, you know. She's that kind of person. It's not impossible for her to not stay dead. (laughs) But my relationship with her as she's dead grows better. I say more nice things about her or I remember her. I I haven't forgotten the cruel and harsh things that she visited on us, her children, but there was also lots of good things, you know, for remember, for remember instance, I was just telling someone how I learned to read and I learned to read by her teaching me words in books that she was reading. So that when I went to school, I, was con- I could read everything by the time I was three, three and a half years old. I could read anything. And so when I went to school, I was three and a half years old, but I had to say I was five because they would only take you if you were five. <laughs> I was confronted with this thing called the alphabet. <laughs> I'd learned to read without knowing there was something called an alphabet. And to this day, I still have a problem with vowels. <laughs> First of all, the word vowel sounded, it's the va, you know, it sounded so amazing, vowels. And then, of course, the idea that it was just comprised of these five letters, which weren't even near each other, A, E, I, O, U, you know, they weren't, it wasn't like ABC, they were far away, seemed far away from each other and they were vowels. It took me a long time. I was say to this day, I still have problems with it. But it gave me feeling for words that again, well, permeates my writing. I have a, a love of words, not all words, you know, I am very particular with them. I have a, a sort of affiliation with them that may not be good for writing, but they are very, it's a very pleasurable relationship, you know, to just think of a word for, or to find the right word. For to spend a year looking for the right word to go in the sentence. It's just incredibly wonderful. And so I owe that to her. So, yeah, I have reasons to, as she's dead and stays as long as she remains dead, to find, uh, to think very warmly and positively of her. Does that answer your question? Yes,
0: it does. Yes. <laughs> and I didn't mean to imply, I, I knew she had passed away and I'm sorry. I are well, sometimes... not implying
1: anything at all. <laughs> no, no. no, oh, no, please. I hope I sound friendly and appreciative because I feel that way. But, you know... to you for doing this. No, of
0: course. You're very kind. Of course. No, it's my pleasure. I thought it was so interesting in your book about your brother when you were growing up that you said your mother didn't like seeing you laying around reading and that she thought you were doomed to a life of slothfulness. And you said, as it turned out, I was only doomed to write books other people might read. So I wanted to hear a little more about how you got your start writing and I read about the story of what happened when you came to the United States but I would love for you to to tell it in your own words.
1: Oh, well, yes, you know, I was sent away to work as a servant and I did and people who knew me as a child are not surprised that I became a writer because apparently I I would always pretend I was writing even though I didn't know that people still wrote serious literature. I think the last I read, I thought literature had stopped with Kipling, Mm -hmm. and so it was a surprise to me when I was 19 that the woman in the household I I was a nanny in gave me, I think it was to the lighthouse, she was a a feminist and a very big Virginia well, it's either to the lighthouse or a room of one's own, and then I she had all these books that I just discovered, you know, modern literature. I remember that around that time, while I was there, a book by Vladimir Nabokov had come out. I think it was Ada, Ada. I don't know how, you, I still don't know how you pronounce it. <laughs> and I was amazed. I read it and i couldn't understand it at all i didn't like it it was perhaps the beginning of me thinking of i like this i don't like this and so on but i didn't know that people still wrote serious literature i thought they just wrote penguin detective stories and romances you know i didn't know that there was such a thing as writing but i must have always wanted to be an artist or something because i thought i would be a photographer and i studied photography But I began to write out the photographs and it just occurred to me then that, oh, I'm a writer. And so I quit the college I was going to in New Hampshire, returned to New York and started to write. And, you know, the funny thing about being in America, at at least in those days, I don't know anymore what America is like. But in those days, you could sort of, whatever you said you were, people said, oh, yes, that's what you are because you said so. And so (laughs) I said I was a writer and people said yes. And one thing led to the other, and then I started to write for the New Yorker. Wow. Yeah. It's an improbable tale, but all too true. (laughs) Every word of it is true.
0: When you look back on all the many things you've written over the course of your career, is there anything that stands out as as something that you're most proud of, of having written?
1: Oh gosh, yes. I think the last book I wrote, my the last novel I published, see now. Then I sometimes when I'm asked to read from it because I never really read my own work when I'm well, unless I'm paid to. Or asked. <laughs> I would dream of looking at it again, but sometimes <laughs> when I have to read from that book, I, I sometimes want to stop and just admire some of the things I did in it that I'd always dreamed of doing in in a piece of writing, you know of carrying on a thought for a long time, dropping something, picking it up again, all in one sentence. I really love that the things I did in that book, the techniques of writing that to me are so much like the way I think when I am silent, you know, when I'm thinking with no one around, just to myself. So yes, I, I particularly love that that book. Almost no one agrees with me, but I think it's the best thing. <laughs> I've written and the short stories I first wrote the one sentence short story in at the bottom of the river I'm very proud of those uh, things I mean I wouldn't say that unless you asked me and I don't think I've even ever said admitted that so I must be coming to the end of my life which is very annoying I hate endings (laughs)
0: It doesn't mean you're coming to the end of your life. It could just mean you've like reached a place of self-acceptance, and you're you're willing to commend oh. yourself. All <laughs> oh, right, that sounds much better.
1: Yes. Anyway, <laughs> I would say, yeah, I I love you know writing that. Well, I love reading philosophy, even though I I'm the sort of person who reads Being and Time and over and over again because I love the way it asks. You to understand who, a being existence, even though you can't really. But it's, yeah, it's a powerful word. But I, I yes. Yeah. So anyway, never mind. <laughs>
0: And I, I hear you're going to be a library lion at the New York Public Lions event this November, and I'm I'm going to be there as a guest, so I will have to look for you when, when we're there. Were you excited? Oh, to, yes. So yes, Were you excited to get that honor? I know you've gotten many in your lifetime. Well, oh, in my lifetime? Oh, God, that sounds so old, my lifetime. Oh, no, lifetime. I'm sorry. I ruined, oh, it. I ruined well. it again. <laughs> I just, well, you
1: know, I just. I just turned 70 and I don't see, I I look at people who are 70 and I thought, oh, do I look like that? But I don't feel like that. And so I'm very sensitive and not, I, I would never lie about my age, but I, you know, I see someone um, has died at 72 and I think, oh no, only two more years, but I, I haven't even planted all the annuals I want to plant. Um, Never mind the perennials, but every time I'm given an award or something, I'm always surprised because I think, I deeply, truly think no one has ever heard of me. (laughs) It's one of the ways I'm able to write what I write because I think, well, no one will ever read this. So I just do what I really want to do because no one will ever read it. So I think, well, no one has ever heard of me. Why would I be a literary lion? But I'm really quite thankful, I mean, and, and and happy, you know. When I was little and I was given prizes in school, you'd have to wear your dress uniform and get up on the stage and curtsy and everyone would clap. And So I find it sort of, well, really, everything wonderful that happens to me Reminds me of my childhood, and of everything, terrible. (laughs) 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 So, yes, I I am very pleased, surprised and pleased. Um, Yes, I'll be very, very pleased to have that. Yes, it's very nice. Gather my other honorees are so distinguished, I shall hide.
0: (laughs) No, not at all. (laughs) When you talk to people just starting out on a writing career, what advice do you like to give them?
1: Oh, never go to a creative writing school. Do not get an MFA. Or if you do, it's only because you needed the time. But certainly don't take the advice of a teacher. No one can teach you how to write. Just remember Homer was a blind person sitting at the city's gates. Just remember the Apostle Paul, that no Galatians listened to him. And in any case, there are no Galatians anymore. But his (laughs) letters to the Galatians, you can still find them. (laughs) So just write as if, you know, something depends on it, something that you don't know, but something important. And I don't mean to, because I, I teach creative writing, but and my students will tell you, it's so, you know, my, my teaching is just, But well, what would you like to do? What would you, because writing is so peculiar. It's so, you know, you can teach someone how the proper way to put paint on a canvas, but then the proper way to put paint on a canvas might not be the way you paint. Let's see, let's ask Jackson Pollock about that. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, it's very hard to teach people to write. Or to think you you can or you want to teach people to write. Oh, I hope no creative writing professor listens to your podcast. <laughs> they probably they probably don't. <laughs> oh God, <laughs> we writers we do have to make a living. On the other hand, you know, writing is it's not it's not really a career. I don't under I mean I don't understand it. Do I have a career? I suppose I do, but I didn't mean to. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I didn't know one, I didn't know you could do this, that this could be done. I, I had no idea. And so that's the other thing with young people starting to write is that they think perhaps this has something to do with being rich and famous and so on. And it and it really doesn't. It's unfortunate that, you know, we writers are part of something called publicity, but it's really something quite wonderful and holy. I think. <laughs> I think. But anyway, so advice to young writers. Oh, well, I do have advice, positive advice. Read, read, read. Just read everything, even if it's the directions on a box of over-the-counter medicine.
0: Just read it. Well, I will now spend, I'll spend the rest of my day now at Rite Aid, you know, reading all the boxes. (laughs) I to find my inspiration and you know directions and dosages. So I knew I knew I was forgetting to do something. <laughs> well, I just want to thank you so much. That was that's the end of our little time together. But I just am so grateful for you for doing that to you for doing this. And I really hope to meet you in in November. And yes, yes, please, I'll accost you <laughs> at the party. Yes. uh, I I will be very disappointed if I don't find you. Okay. (laughs) Well, enjoy the rest of the day gardening and thanks again for all your time. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks again to today's sponsor of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, Himalaya, the best app for discovering, listening, and organizing podcasts, Himalaya.com. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibby.com. Goins.com.